is City State Radio, the show where we talk about cities. We talk about all kinds of stuff happening in cities, urban policy, urban design, far and near with a healthy helping of uh, chat about our great historic city of Louisville here in the, the middle part of the country. Anyway, my name's Pat Smith coming at you once again from the home studio Got my got my co-hosts out there. What's up, guys? Tell, tell me a little bit about your day. Introduce yourselves. What's up? It's pretty cool to wake up and have to use a scraper to clear ice off of my windshield. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Loving it. This is the snow that we needed, and I'm glad it came. <laughs> this is Patrick Puma from the Belt Map neighborhood. And uh, Patrick Henry joining you from Spring Valley. Beautiful Spring Valley. Spring Valley. Spring Valley. Man, uh, you guys are enjoying spring out there in that valley. Man, I'm looking out, looking out the windows here. Uh, the the dogwoods look good in the hood. You know, the, the they they overcame this the light snow. You gotta love every spring in Louisville, in Lexington, uh, in in the bluegrass area where, where people just kind of like can't believe that there's just some kind of, you know, late spring cold snaps and people are like, Oh my gosh, like it's, it's got cold and it was 70, but now it's going to snow. And it's like, you guys have been living here. Come on, come on. Yeah. Welcome to the Ohio Valley. Uh, it is beautiful, though. We've had a long spring. I mean, the trees have been in bloom for, like, weeks, it feels like. Uh, technically, this is – I mean, spring should be three months long, and this would be – we've we've had one <laughs> month of spring. One month. Spring spring starts at the spring equinox, March 20th, March 21st sometimes, and now it's April 21st, and, uh, you know, we're getting ready to probably start summer next week. So, uh, you know, we don't, we don't get that good spring. We don't, we just don't get it. Let's talk about, you know, what the snow did to your all's gardens. I know everybody's hanging. Um, all the listeners are out there. Like did Patrick Henry's garden survive? Did Patrick <laughs> Puma's front yard, uh, boxes make it through this cold snap? Were plants damaged? That's, that's what I'm, I'm curious about. The only plants that I've got going on right now are like, several variety of mint that just kind of came back up as mint tends to do <laughs> if you for, don't contain it <laughs> those are for all those mint juleps you're going to be sucking down for derby oh uh, yeah i was actually i did harvest some before i took a lawnmower to a lot of it um but it's pretty amazing when you run, run over a huge patch of uh mountain mint with a lawnmower and the fragrance just kind of hits you Mm. Uh, it's like the opposite of like being behind an old bus and when the, <laughs> it takes off and like a big plume of diesel smoke hits you in the face. But, um, but yeah, uh, the boxes don't have anything in them. I'm in the middle of kind of redoing my whole front yard and realizing that as I get older, I don't like to do a lot of the actual work and <laughs> I got started and now it's going to probably sit like that for a while because I just don't feel like carrying huge rocks and stuff. Yeah, my garden's suffering. It's uh, the weeds. I've been thinking about making up a little all-natural roundup, you know, vinegar, salt, um, 
a touch of dishwashing liquid to go around and hit the weeds in the yard because all the plant beds. I got a weed bed. That's all I've got. Weed beds. Wait, does that work? Yeah, it works. Never even heard of that before. A gallon of vinegar, a cup of salt, and a teaspoon of dishwashing liquid. I, I, wanted, I wanted to make a segue into, you know, we're talking about plant damage to, I think, some damaged trees in the highlands that, that I think you guys wanted to talk about. Like, I, like we, nature comes along with a little bit of a cold snap in the spring, damages some of our trees, some of our plants. Um, but then we have these situations, you know, that's out of our control. That's an act of God, um, as some would put it. But then we have situations where we have some pretty fantastic, you know, plants, large trees, um, street trees in great urban neighborhoods. And then somebody purposefully comes along and damages these trees. And I, I know that there's a situation here, um, I think in the Highlands, you guys wanted to talk about in terms of uh, what's up with just the utility companies uh, coming at these trees like this. Why is this happening? Can we prevent it? What's up? I don't really, I mean, so on along Bardstown Road, which is our, a major commercial corridor in Louisville, outside of downtown, that uh, there's like 40 utility and power lines and all that kind of stuff running in almost any area that you go through along that corridor. You're going to find that like just uh, a spaghetti mess of power lines and things going along. So... And typically, it's on one side of the road, not you know, worse than the other. And it just happens that on the one side of the road that it runs along, at least in the section that I was looking at today, I mean, they they veed these trees to get them away from the power lines and things like that. But they did it to the point where there's almost no tree left. And uh, I don't totally understand why these trees were able to get to the size that they got, and then all of a sudden they came in and cut them like they did because there's most of the trees that I saw, and it almost seems like you might as well have just cut the tree down because it's not going to survive, and there, it looks terrible. I mean, I and I, I don't. I always thought that you plant these certain variety of trees because they don't get real tall, and I didn't think that you had to cut the trees. Um, if they were in the like the telecom and things like that, I thought they most of the times you would trim trees. It was dealing with the like they were growing into the power part, which is usually much higher up on a utility pole. But that wasn't the case in in this situation. And I tried to look up what what the different like LG&E and different utilities that come in and cut this stuff, what their responsibilities are. But I, I couldn't find the documentation before this show. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the, the approach that needs to happen is just that, one, I think it would be nice if our city just, you know, planted the trees, right? So they need to be, the ones under those lines that they veed, they need to be planted with C-class trees, which is a smaller tree. So, you know, your red bud service berries, uh, tree lilacs, you know, that kind of thing. And then, so you put the smaller trees on the side with the power lines, and then you put the, the B to a class trees which are those you know you think of your mature trees from your maples to your oaks on the other side where there's no power lines and that's what needs to happen and um i you know it, they're just gonna they're just gonna keep cutting them um 
that's just what they do. It's what their responsibility is. Cause everybody also freaks out when their power goes out. So, um, <laughs> right. yeah. you know, and, and the, the solution could be that when street improvements are made, when they have to tear up the sidewalk and stuff that they come back in and they lay down those utilities below grade, but it's such an invasive approach and it's so expensive to sort of rip up sidewalks and put them back down that you have to coordinate all that with a big streetscape improvement. And that's when usually those kinds of things happen. Um, there is some tree planting happening that I hope, can I talk about that now? I, uh, can, can, can we, can we get to that in a minute? Cause I like, mean, you, yep, you opened yep. some cans of worms and I don't want those cans of worms to get, you know, dusty and dried up um, <laughs> while you make your, you know, uh, public service announcement. But uh, I, I I wanted to get to this this bearing of power lines thing. And then we will definitely talk about that amazing project that you're working on. I was not disparaging that project. Just uh, a lame attempt at a joke there. Um, the Why don't we bury power lines? I mean, that's that's big. I know we've got a lot of people that this is like a kind of a perennial, you know, complaint of theirs, especially when you look at the streetscape on a Bardstown road, you got storefronts against the street, the a main commercial pedestrian strip in the heart of a bunch of fantastic historic neighborhoods of, you know, a lot of single family housing, um, you know, of, of a, lot, a lot of different types from, you know, gorgeous Victorian style mansions to small shotgun type houses all around the street. And everywhere you look, like Pima was talking about before with the 40 different lines, is just a crisscross of big, thick black wires and chipped up wood poles holding them up. And I think for a lot of, at least for me, you don't, you kind of like, you don't even see it anymore. You know, it's just yeah. like in your visual frame, but yeah. like you're not drawn to it. But imagine like somebody coming from like, modern cities like they're building like in, in, in China um, in, 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 in Asia and in, in some other parts around the world. Like if they came here, that would probably be all that they could see was just like, gosh, this looks like insane, like third world craziness of just like these huge lines dragged in every single direction, crisscrossing, forming like a canopy of electricity over our heads everywhere, you know, and it's, it's, it's crazy. So I know we've got people like we got Dan Borsch past, um, candidate, uh, for council district D eight, uh, entrepreneur, restaurant owner, um, has some great places in old Louisville. You know, he's, he's always on social media with like, you know, if Louisville wants to move forward, we need to bury our power lines. But I mean, I think you just, you think about it and it's just like, Whoa, this is going to be a major expense. Um, our utility company um, is, for whatever people think about their rates, and I know there's usually controversies every year or two when rates are to get raised for whatever reasons, the, the amount that rates would need to be raised to bury the power lines um, citywide would be astronomical. Now, I'm looking at this, like, it's kind of an old uh, piece um, from Brad Plummer in, in Washington Post. Uh, from gosh, way back in 2012, but he's looking at some really cool studies um, about you know who buries power lines, who doesn't bury power lines, how much do they cost, 
and like kind of front and center, he has this example um, from Washington D.C., which has uh, I, I guess had a lot of uh, above ground um, power lines. So for their utility to bury all of the overhead power lines would cost five point eight billion dollars, and to make that work, they would need to add uh, two hundred twenty six dollars a month to the electricity bill. That's in twenty ten dollars. So that would that's that would probably be like way more today. So for everybody out there that wants to have the power lines buried, and for all of the great aesthetic concerns um, that that would help out with all of the great sort of allowing these trees to flourish on the street, helping air quality, helping the neighborhoods look beautiful and just function better with all of the great benefits of trees, whether that's soaking up water or whether that's raising property values because people love trees. Are you willing to have another 200 bucks on your utility bill a month to make that happen? You know, and like, um, and maybe that's just the wrong way to look at it because I, I think about that and uh i'm like why do we have to foot this bill why does the consumer have to foot this bill why can't this be a, an incredible project of of the city the state the utility company why can't we bring in some kind of like federal um you know joe we got uncle joe's big um new plan for infrastructure why can't that just why, why can't we why can't we do it with that why, why do we got to pay for the bill um why can't we do it as a society but uh I, I got some more things to say on this, but just in terms of what I said, what are you guys thinking? It's just so it's such a huge. I mean, I think that that article you pointed to makes a lot of sense. I mean, five point eight billion dollars in 2010 uh, to do it. I mean, I can look at projects we've worked on and say, OK, at ten million dollars a mile to improve the street. Um, <laughs> you know, you could see where that goes really fast. I mean, you spend a lot of money really quickly. And there's, it's like, the other thing is that there are years of each utility company kind of working on their own. So MSD or Louisville Water or whatever, right? Um, sort of trying to put their utilities in the place that they feel like works best mm -hmm. um, is not going to end up, you know, with a conflict with each other, those kinds of things. Totally. So there's a total like spaghetti junction below grade, you know, yeah. and so then to sort of take all those pieces, put them below grade, you know, deal with all the easements and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's not always easy. And a lot of times, even when when utilities are buried, you're still trying to find places to plant trees because there's so many um, there's so much crisscrossing of infrastructure that can yeah. happen below grade and the easements that go with it. It just becomes really challenging. Totally. And in, and in Brad Plummer's article here, I mean, you know, he's talking about some reasons why it could even be more expensive than maybe this D.C. example where it's, you know, it's a wet area. It's a low lying wet area. That, I mean, that that prevents some cities from being able to do this. Uh, Colorado has like extremely hard, like granite, like as a part of the geology underneath, like right, right underneath the street. You know, you like that would be an enormous cost to sort of dig that out. And then also, I guess, as a reason why overhead wires sometimes maybe make sense is that it's extremely expensive and disruptive to repair um, underground wires. Uh, to the level of like, it's not like just like, oh, ice storm, 
overhead wire got taken out, boom, contractor guys are here, your power's back on in three hours. It's like, okay, let's, it's underground. Well, we got to get the permits. We got to shut down the street. We got to dig up the street. Um, I don't know. I think that there's a lot of things that people don't think about um, that makes this maybe not a super easy fix in terms of doing this underground. You know, one of the things that surprised me is a lot of the utility companies, they own their own poles, Yeah. which I think is like if, if you could manage like the sort of maybe the city owns the poles and then dictates where the things go and forces people to share. I mean, you go back to like the Google um, Internet that we had briefly. Right. If they could if that was all done on a public poll and they were sharing those polls, well, then you you'd you'd minimize you know, like on Main Street, where there's like in one block, you might have 20 utility poles, right? Um, because everybody's got their own pole. Yeah. Um, you know, you could just minimize that and coordinate it a lot better. Totally. And I think another sweet spot here for the potential to do underground lines is like sort of, you know, major new construction or infrastructure projects. Like, say, I know that we're looking at, um, a new plan for Broadway, which is a huge street in Louisville, um, multi-lane uh, street that cuts across the entire old city from the Shawnee neighborhood in the west all the way over to the Highlands in the east. Like, say there was going to be some sort of new median project as a part of that, right? Like, that's the perfect opportunity to, yeah. as a part of an existing either new roadway project, median project, maybe if some cities that are doing light rail, like, those are the the times when you're like, yeah. you want to bring in the utility and be like, Hey, well, since we're already going to be tearing up the street, let's, let's put these power lines underground, you know, like that, that seems yeah. like a viable way to do some of this. What, what was this tree? We started off talking about trees, Patrick Henry. What was, what was this tree project that you wanted to bring in before the break here? Oh, I just, I got notification from, um, Jackie Cobb, friend of show that, uh, they had sort of, already planted 35 trees in this project so briefly uh this this project uh, one night one day i'd walk down barstone road and then i tweeted about like we've missed what's happened to the trees they're not being replaced stuff like that we should plant you know trees this spring and of course jackie said hey i'm on it let's let's do this right and um ben botkins other friend of show had already started having a conversation with kytc about how can we plant some trees on bartstown road in the right of way at least in this section between mid city mall and eastern parkway right so uh jackie rob monsma and myself got together and said well let's sort of boost what ben's sort of already thinking if he can get trees going in the right-of-way we can get maybe trees going outside of the right-of-way on the private property mm. you know and sort of really sort of tree up and say this is what a green bartstown road would look like a heavily treed bartstown road not even heavily treed but just a normally treed bartstown road and so um we started talking to cindy sullivan uh trees, trees louisville yeah these are all friends to show um uh and and got in touch with um casey uh chambers armstrong about um you know is there you know they were doing some stuff that she'd sort of picked up the uh the green i forget what it's called the um 
it was like a St. Patty's Day thing that Brandon Cohen had de- was doing before, you know, when he was a council person, she kind of picked that up. And so anyway, we all got together and uh, really, I think it was really heavily um, Jackie, Trees, Louisville, um, uh, our council person, Ch- uh, Cassie Chambers Armstrong, and her le- legislative assistant, Megan Metcalf, kind of sort of found the funds uh, went to MSD, got some grant funding from MSD, went to KYTC, Jason Richardson over there, um, and talked to them about, okay, can we get this thing that that Ben was pushing? Can we sort of do both of these projects, parts of the, both of these projects? And um, so through all these groups, uh, we had a little bit of a tree map that Ben and the tree forester, the urban tree forester, had done. And then Jackie and Rob and I made a tree map, uh, and we sort of combined them. You know, and and like I said, this group Trees Louisville and stuff sort of modified it and made it better. They went out and they did it. So so far, they've planted 35 trees outside of the right of way, in the sort of section between um, Mid City and Eastern Parkway. Mid City Mall, and, Eastern Parkway. Yeah. Yep. And nice. now and and they've gotten the permits to cut uh, 30 tree wells on Barstown Road as well. So they're doing this project. It's big and time. All of those people um you know are they're doing it so kudos to to everyone involved good good stuff trees coming into the hood uh citizen action in action i love it and the right trees the right trees on so where we need small trees small trees where we need big trees big trees so we won't have lg and e hacking them to death uh you're right here art fm wxoxlp louisville you're here in City State. And if you ever want to interact with us live, real time, because we're mostly sitting here checking our phones um, while we're on the radio with you, you can hit us at underscore City State. And um, there's a good chance that, that we, we, we could talk about, you know, whatever you want to talk about if you hit us up. I mean, we can't take every request or, or comment, but uh, if it's a good one, We'd, we'd love to to bring it in, especially if it's about what we're talking about right here. And I know, Patrick Henry, you're, you're chomping at the bit to get into Elon Musk's situation. I mean, honestly, I, I, I see these tweets come across about what he's up to and, and uh, pay a little bit of attention. Uh, there's some stuff about tunnels. It all looks kind of ridiculous. I'm not even sure what it is. What's going on with uh, with Elon Musk's transit tunnels? Uh, yeah, so you know the story came out. I guess they released on um, they did on one of the news or a couple of the sort of news like CNN, MSNBC. They sort of did a story on these uh, you know the boring corporate corporation or the boring companies tunnels um, that they did in Las Ve- uh, Las Vegas under their uh convention center right so it's it's a they did a 1.7 mile tunnel under this convention center as sort of a test run test pilot for for this thing and it's you know it cost uh two i'm sorry 50 a little over 52 million dollars for this thing and uh the big question is does it you know does it make any sense to um, to do to do this thing. So it's a tunnel right now. It's a tunnel for Teslas, right? It started out 
as, uh, you know, if you think of a subway, right, it was going to basically be a tunnel with some kind of a, uh, a tram kind of thing. It was almost like a small EV bus that sort of ran on some kind of tracks or blade or whatever. It would get people from one place to the other really quickly. Uh, and it's turned into, you know, single occupancy vehicle, basically Tesla's driving around in a tunnel uh, under the convention center. And, you know, there's all this question of, is it, is it the answer? And, um, you know, I think many people are saying, well, it, it's not, it doesn't seem like the answer. If you're talking about just driving cars below ground, uh, in this scenario, you're talking about having one to sort of, you have to have an app on your phone to sort of call a car you call the car, it shows up, you get into it, it takes you to the other side of the convention is how it works. Yeah. And there's a person driving this car. Nah, it's I didn't not realize even, that. <laughs> See, like it's in my head, self-driven. If, in my head, I was like thinking that people that own Teslas rolled up <laughs> like got to use the tunnel. But literally, they're using Teslas as like a super inefficient train. Like yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's when, like, when, this when idea say, already exists. Yeah. Go ahead. When you say the boring company, you're not saying that this is a boring company. This is an <laughs> actual business venture that Elon Musk founded like in 2016 called The Boring Company. I got, you know, boring holes through the earth. And, and you know, just in doing my like really crappy, cursory internet research, I could be totally wrong, but there's like some speculation on Twitter that like this whole company and this whole idea came out of just like a brain fart like idea from Elon Musk that started as a tweet where he was yeah. like in traffic and he was like, this is ridiculous. Like I, I just want to like bore through the ground like a mole and get to where I'm going. And like that tweet is like purported to possibly be the genesis of this like multi you know, hundred billion dollar idea to make these ridiculous underground tunnels made out of, um, you know, for trains made out of Teslas. Am I getting that right? That's right. That's right. And, you know, right now they're like, okay, we can move 4,400 people an hour. That's questionable because you have to, again, sort of call a car up. And I would assume that figure would also take into like, I'm assuming that figure assumes that you fill the car up, right? But if you're standing there next to three other people you don't know, what are the chances you're going to get into a car with those three people? It's 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 basically you call a car, you get in, the next person calls a car. I mean, just imagine a line a mile long of people waiting to sort of ride, you know, whatever, a half a mile from one side to a convention center to the other. It just it doesn't make any sense. And on a scale, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Subways. Sure. That makes sense. That's been invented. It's been around for well over 100 years. Um, you know, anyway, it's, so this, it's like it's. They did some demos on this in like in Vegas last week. Is that right? That's where we're seeing right. these pictures that everyone's making yeah. fun of. Um, and like, yeah. I love this guy uh, at Mando Party on uh, Twitter. Um, I love like he, he got like almost eight thousand retweets on this. Here's here's the quote: "The real innovation of Musk's car tunnel is that it's so tight you can't open your doors, you can't pass anyone. There's no way for an ambulance or fire engine to get in." <laughs> like, <laughs> 
I mean, this is, seems kind of dangerous, right? I mean, hopefully they yeah. have like a roof, like the moon roofs in Teslas that you could pop out and, and escape if, if the, Tesla, exactly. the Tesla broke down. This seems like a death tube. Um, I don't a know. death tube. Who knows? I mean, maybe there's a plan. Maybe there's a, a tram or a bus in the works, right, that will sort of occupy this thing at some point. I but, but, don't think so. But again, that, isn't that just a subway? It's so, but, wait a minute. Really, really making fun of this was a way for us. It was a Trojan horse concept for us to get into the idea of electric vehicles as as an answer, right? And, and I'm not sure... Which one of you guys had that genius idea for us to do that? Uh, but, I mean, we got some stuff happening. Investments come in. Uncle Joe Biden is throwing some big money at EVs. Is that the answer for cities? Well, I mean, I think we did, I think when we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, we talked about it as a part of a solution. But I don't think we got – I don't know that we got into, like, if you look at that um, infrastructure package he threw out – EVs were like third from the top, right? It was more than double, I think, what what was being invested in public transit. Um, maybe even more than double of like public transit and roads. But I forget the public transit figure, but it looks like there's going to be a big announcement tomorrow on um, Biden's climate plan, which I obviously would have sort of um, uh, overlap with Biden's infrastructure plan. But I think there's going to be a, a, an announcement tomorrow, um, and the electric car piece is going to be big. And I think the number is $174 billion. And a big piece of this is going to be like a tax, uh, I guess, tax refund for people to buy EVs. So, like, remember, like, Obama's, like, tax refund to buy a house and you know during the housing crisis or whatever. Like, you got 8000 bucks if you bought a house. What was that, 2008? Something like that. Like you're going to get, I guess, seven to $10,000 back in your tax refund. It's probably more complicated than that. I'm just, I'm just speculating here. Um, when you buy that EV, uh, when, once this gets passed. So I guess the idea is that you buy an EV, you bring on that huge payment, and then you get like this, like huge tax, huge, huge tax refund back. I'm not sure how it works, but um, this is going to be, yeah, a part of the $2 trillion infrastructure plan. That's a great question that, that you have, Henry. Is is this at least even comparable to what we're going to be doing for trains, intercity trains? Is this even comparable yeah. to what we're going to be doing for intracity uh, public transit? Like yeah. this, this is just seems like even if it is electric vehicles, that it's still a double down on cars being king in neighborhoods, yeah. in communities. Um, in dictating how cities look. Well, and the question is, is it does it become a subsidy for the car, another subsidy for the for the car? Totally. Um, and right, and we can't EV our way out of this. I mean, obviously EVs are a part of the solution. Uh, it's better for I think for people to be driving battery powered cars versus gas powered cars, but. Um, if all of us just switched and started driving EVs and we didn't change our habits, we're still we're still wreaking a lot of havoc, reaping a lot of havoc. 
And if we think about all of our discussions about how much of our our cityscape, our landscape is designated to the car and the the safetyness and and unsafety, you know, factors of the car, right? We're still, like you said, we're still doubling down on the car versus versus making cities for people and things like that, right? So, Pumi, you got anything on this? Yeah, but I was thinking maybe we do a little business or something like that and then pick it up or try and fit it in. I mean, it's mostly, I guess, basically, it's like a an urban design problem. Yeah. More Get than Get in there transportation. You. It's just that, <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, Patrick Henry's already kind of laid it out. It's how we've designed the cities around how cars are used and not how people outside of the cars would use the city most efficiently and most enjoyably so we need to be thinking about that and there's all other there's so many other things with evs that it makes it possible more possible for you especially when it starts becoming autonomous to be able to live farther away and more spread out because you just hop in a car and then but so do trains well the trains (laughs) have a place that you have to like go to to get on there right it's like with EVs, you could just, especially autonomous, you start getting out there and you could be in the middle of nowhere and you don't have to go to a central location. There's no reason to congregate. Well, and that's interesting. I think there are a lot of firms. I mean, our firm looked at that kind of stuff, right? Is is that a thing? Is that real? And you you do have to question I me mean, if you even go back to the, the, the tunnel concept, right? Like, I think there were a lot of tweets and a lot of people saying, if you can't make this Tesla drive in a tunnel <laughs> by itself, right. right? It's on a guided track. Then how do you sort of put that out into the world where there are thousands of other people on the same road that you're on? You know, um, I don't know what the the sort of that kind of assist driving is doing. We heard a lot about it about that like four or five years ago but i don't feel like it's as much of you know the sort of conversation or the advertisements or whatever that that that's being pushed now so is that real the other part too is that the pollution thing like people are like oh we're going to cut down on pollution when we have evs but a, a significant portion of the fine particulates that are created by cars driving is from the tires rubbing on the ground like mm. little microscopic pieces mm. of like worn tire and brake pad are what's floating around in the air that are really bad for yeah. people and that doesn't go away it's like the plastic in the ocean that just breaks down to smaller pieces but never goes mm-hmm. away that's like our what you're talking about that's like our like those little rubber particles that just get smaller and smaller but they never really go away and they're just like in the air Oh, that's that's awful yeah. to think about. It's like a horror movie. Um, I guess it is like a horror called Cancer that people live every day, and it's like, oh my gosh, that's 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 awful. Guys, there was an article I really wanted to talk about. It's 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 a sprawling article. It's chock full, chock a block full of issues. It's from um, Henry um, Graber in um, in Slate. I, I haven't been drawn to Slate for a while. But man, this article is everywhere. 
Um, and it's amazing. And this guy should write a book about it because it's like it's it's not a perfect article. It, it, it jumps around a lot, but it's the title of it is "Good Design" in quotation marks. Good design is making bad cities, but it doesn't have to. With the subtitle "Searching for a Third Way in the Battle Between Aesthetics and Affordability," and I guess like the basis of that title in itself. Um, is kind of talking about a lot of push and pull between a lot of city policies, between a lot of um, market rate, uh, just dynamics, like how do we build cool looking cities? Is it important to build cool looking cities? Um, should we keep the parts of our city that do look special and unique? Maybe some of them are historic versus um, the very big need uh, for more housing, for more affordability. And in a place like Louisville, honestly, for like more density, as we just don't really have density here in Louisville. We have a couple of little spots of density here and there, but we don't really have like whole neighborhoods of density by a long shot. Um, so like... You guys are both designers. Patrick Puma, you're an urban designer. Patrick Henry, you're a landscape designer um, that, that, you know, is very active in the built environment right alongside big projects. I just wanted to see what you guys thought about this article um, because, man, there is a lot going into this. And this guy easily has about eight book chapters sort of just yeah. started in this article and i don't think i've read a more interesting article about what's going on today from historic preservation and those controversies to yimby to nimby to bland buildings that we all hate but keep getting built to yeah. the how do we do better with the the idea of the missing middle like how do we do better with uh density in places that don't have it i mean everything is in this in this stew and it's amazing but it's kind of hard to grasp at first. Yeah, each each paragraph could be a chapter. Totally. <laughs> you know? I mean, there's like he throws a lot at you, and I, I, it's funny the tab on my um, you know, the tab for the website as I've got it pulled up. It reads how design review boards make cities pricier and whiter. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And, and real quick, really, what is I a design review board? It. What's that? What is just just a design yeah, review so, board? So, I mean, there's review boards and all there's historic review boards. There are uh, basically any any plan that gets built. Right. It has to go through like a metro review process um, mm -hmm. in any city and those kinds of things. And I think he sort of gets into like these review boards. They either water it down. They, and it's often uh, a volunteer citizen board. Right. Often, often. So you, you may have people who are like historians, you may have attorneys, you may you may have architects or landscape architects, you may not, right? You may have planners, you may not. So it usually is a mix of a lot of different uh, folks and professions. Yeah, like he has this one example that he links to in Seattle um, where, you know, there's like big, massive new dense apartment buildings um, get subject to sort of like these design review boards and like for aesthetic reasons on like the design review board, like people just don't like the look 
of what it takes to build a big, giant, maybe not super aesthetically pleasing mixed-use apartment building. The design review board will shut it down because it doesn't look cool. You know, like it looks like a big, like, and these are a lot of these big buildings under the, like they're everywhere, you know, other cities around us, um, I guess for points of reference for people like in our part of the world, you know, Nashville, Cincinnati, um, Indianapolis has been more successful in building more of these, but these are the buildings that are the kind of bland buildings that people complain about. Um, but these are the buildings that could, you could get like 600 units. Yeah. Plus, like, your Five Guys Burgers on the first floor and the post office space on the first floor and all of that. But people, sometimes these get shut down by design review boards because they don't look cool. Or because it doesn't have a certain architectural detail. Yes. That, you know, they yeah. think it doesn't yeah. fit into, like, the fabric of the neighborhood or whatever, right? So you end up with um, you end up with design firms sort of trying to sort of meet a sort of set of rules that says, yes. okay, you know, a portion of this, uh, you have to sort of offset the building faces, right? So they sort of sawtooth back and forth, or they've got to have this sort of different materials, right? It's got to have some brick, and it's got to have this and that, and a part of the, you know, percentage has to have a certain amount of fenestration, you know, windows, whatever, and so you end up sort of meeting the rules versus um, focusing on just good design, you know, because it's like the the review process can be so kind of strenuous, so long, so time consuming, which costs money and stuff like that, that you end up with, with uh, people pushing designs through just that they'll know will meet what this group of people will approve. Um, and, and that happens all the time. It's also used, all these kind of design requirements and things are used to keep certain people out of areas and things like that, too. Like you, you know, it's easy to shut down a project that might be affordable housing because you don't like the design or you're using these kind of like uh, random things that you don't like about it to, to keep a project from happening um, at all just because you don't want it in your neighborhood. Yeah, this is like, um, grab our links to this, um, Kristen Capps, he's a writer at City Lab, from a couple of years ago, talking about, um, why historic preservation districts should be a thing of the past. And, um, I, I don't know if Kristen really, you know, feels that way. Um, I, I don't know if that's a provocative, uh, title to get you to, you know, click on the, the City Lab link there. Really great sort of, uh, lead in. To, to, to that idea, though, let me just quote Kristen here, because historic preservation is also a piece of this. As people are saying that we can't build these kinds of new buildings because it doesn't fit in with the historic character of a neighborhood, right? So, like, but l let me read this quote from, from um, Kristen, which gets into the sort of the myriad kind of issues that get brought up um, in this idea of aesthetics affordable housing, what we need for cities versus bland buildings. Anyway, here's a quote from Kristan. Historic preservation is a handy tool. Sometimes it's the scalpel, a precise instrument for safeguarding the long-term cultural legacy of the built environment against the temporary whims of private interests. Other times it's the ax, a melee weapon for defending the interests of homeowners. Um, you know, I, I really like that because I feel like that, like that is that 
difference and that, that, that came up really recently here um, in in Louisville with um, the, the the Liberty Hall building, what people called the Odd Fellows building, you know, where like people seem like they were confused about what historic preservation is for. Um, and, and I think in, in this case, like that's a great example and, and bumping that up, bu- bumping that specific example up of the uh, Liberty Hall Odd Fellows building um, against this interesting piece um, from, from Graybar, like to me, I would be a hundred percent on board with tearing down that Odd Fellows building if we were building like super dense affordable housing on top of it, you know, like that that kind of makes sense. Like I hate to lose a cool old building, and I would never want to see the aesthetics of that cool old building like went out over like a great project that was going to make downtown more livable and affordable and make it actually a place for people, you know, but that's not what it was. I mean, it was getting torn down for really just the convenience of, of the landowner in that, in that case. So I wanted to give you guys some more time to say anything you wanted to say about this. I know we're running out of time. I don't know how we'd get back into this article. I wish we would have given it more time. There's so many interesting tidbits in it. Just go check out uh, Good Design is Making Bad Cities, but it doesn't have to um, over on Slate. Well, and maybe we can come back to it next week. Some it, it was a really dense article. Um, I need to digest and I think, this. Okay. I was just going to say, I think the Oddfellows is a good, and I know we're not supposed to call it that because that's not the name of the building, but it is a good example of, uh, uh, you know, there's historic preservation really attempting to save a building, right, with no intention, at least no public expression of a planned, you know, a future planned use, right? Maybe if we saw what the, the next iteration was and we knew there was funding for it and all that stuff, so all the steps are in place. Because I do think, you know, if you're going to tear down a building like that, you should have steps in place for the next thing and know because we've seen, we've seen, we saw it down with Museum Plaza where buildings were torn down, right? And then, you know, I think in that instance, may, maybe the market crashed and that's what came, you know, that can happen in any situation. But just, you know, that we don't tear these things down before we've got a real plan set into motion. Hey, to cut and, you off, and, yeah. we are at the end of the hour. Thanks for listening to the City State. Uh, check us out, underscore City State on Twitter. Peace out, you all. Be good. Peace.